Hey guys, it's Rachel Duncan, clinical pharmacist here to bring you your Pharmacy Friday Emergency Medical Minute. Today we're going to talk about the topic that's on everyone's mind, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. As it worsens, I thought it might be an appropriate time to touch base on that again and sort of see how it's been affecting emergency departments, and then to talk more in depth about the new vaccines that are coming out. Because I know if you're like me and you're in healthcare, all of your friends and family and non-healthcare worker acquaintances are asking you about this vaccine. Would you take it? How does it work? It sounds different than what we've used in the past. So we are going to dive a little bit deeper into that today and answer some of those questions. So to start out with just how COVID-19 has affected our lives in the ER, um, a survey found that emergency department visits declined by 42% during the early COVID-19 pandemic from a mean of 2.1 million visits per week. And that's between March 31st and April 27th of 2019 to 1.2 million per week in the same time frame of this past year, 2020, with the steepest decreases being in persons aged less than or equal to 14 years, in females, and then of course in the Northeast, where especially in the New York City and New Jersey area, where we saw that big hotbed of COVID-19 first erupt in March and April. And as I mentioned, these declines were most profound in those areas heavily affected by COVID-19. And then as other hotspots popped up in the country, we saw this trend continue. And the decrease of patients may be due to multiple reasons. First, and most optimistically, it may be a sign of effective strategies to streamline the health system in response to the pandemic. And second, some emergencies such as injuries may simply decrease as people are, were staying at home more, especially during that initial lockdown. Now, on the flip side, ED visits for actual emergency, actual medical emergencies declined as well. So independent of severe acute respiratory syndrome caused by COVID-19 infection, emergency calls for cardiac arrest increased dramatically in March, but many patients were declared dead at the scene, so they never made it into the ER. This suggests, I think, what we all sort of started to notice, that people are waiting too long to seek care for true medical emergencies, which can be a potentially lethal decision. So fear of COVID-19 infection also seems to be affecting the demand for emergency care. Many patients, probably rightfully so, perceive a trip to the ED as a trip to a COVID-19 hotbed. A recent study on patients' perceptions about EDs during the pandemic found that hospitals were seen as infection reservoirs and that patients were unaware or relatively unaware of the steps that hospitals had taken to protect uninfected patients from COVID-19. So that's definitely a lesson for our public health folks on getting that message out to the general public. Fast forward to the past month, and there has now been a dramatic increase in ED visits directly related to increased cases of COVID-19 and patients requiring hospitalization. The U.S. continues to notch record COVID-19 infections with a national seven-day average of daily new cases hitting over 170,000 this past Sunday. So more and more hospitals are being filled to capacity, leaving oftentimes critically ill patients to be held in the ED 
by you or me until a bed or nurse may become available on the inpatient side. A lot of us are, are seeing these hold times, these wait times increase dramatically. And whereas that critically ill patient went to the ICU, they may see a one-to-one or one-to-two nursing ratio. Oftentimes we don't have that luxury in the ER. So I'm sure it will be interesting to go back and see that level of care and how holding in the ER maybe is affecting that level of care. So that's kind of the bad news, but is there a light at the end of the tunnel for tired ED and other healthcare workers? And I have been really encouraged by some of the results coming out from COVID-19 vaccine studies. So we definitely have some promising preliminary results from a couple of different companies. We're going to specifically talk about two today. The first being the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine candidate called BNT162B2. This was found to be 90% effective in preventing infection during the phase three clinical trial which enrolled over 40,000 participants, with about a third of those being in the U.S. and the rest being abroad. Similarly, Moderna reported that during the phase three study of its vaccine candidate um, called mRNA-1273, which enrolled a similar number of patients, 30,000 adult U.S. participants, just five of the 95 COVID-19 cases occurred among those that were vaccinated, while 90 infections were identified in the placebo group. So this corresponds to that efficacy of about 95% that we're all seeing on the news. And also encouraging, none of the infected patients who received the vaccine develop severe COVID-19. Well, 11 or approximately 12% of those who received the placebo did. So not only is it preventing folks from getting an active infection, when they get it, they are getting less sick, it appears. And again, these are relatively small studies. When you only have less than 100 patients in the entire study getting the intended outcome to study, which is a COVID-19 infection, it can be hard to generalize, but certainly promising. So how does this new mRNA vaccine work? Well, we all know that vaccines train the immune system to recognize the disease-causing part of a virus. So vaccines traditionally contain either purified signature proteins, which are typically you know, known as dead or um, vaccines of the virus, or weakened viruses, which are often known as live vaccines. But an mRNA vaccine is different because rather than having the actual viral protein injected, a person receives genetic material, which is the mRNA, that encodes for the viral protein. So when these genetic instructions are injected into the muscle, let's say of the upper arm, the cells translate them to make the viral protein directly in the body. So pretty cool. You can wrap your brain around that, kind of using the body to be able to create this disease itself. So this approach actually mimics what the SARS COVID-19 molecule does in nature. The critical difference being the vaccine mRNA codes only for the critical fragment of the viral protein. So this gives the immune system just like a sneak peek of what the real virus looks like without actually causing disease. And this preview gives the immune system time to design powerful antibodies that can then neutralize the real virus if the individual is ever infected. 
So one question that definitely popped up in my mind when I finally figured out how these new mRNA vaccines are working is if this is part of our genetic code now, does this get passed on to the next generation? And the answer there is no. While the synthetic mRNA is genetic material, it cannot be transmitted to the next generation. mRNA is an intrinsically safe factor as it is a minimal and only transient carrier of information that does not actually interact with the genome. So after an mRNA injection, the molecule will guide the appropriate protein production inside the muscle cells and kind of work for two to three days and then basically be out of your system. So one of the things that I've been noticing as I hear about this on the news is this is happening really fast. Like why is making an mRNA vaccine so fast? Well, traditional vaccine development, although well studied, is very time consuming and cannot respond instantaneously against novel pandemics such as what we're dealing with right now. So let me give you an example of our typical vaccine process. For seasonal flu, it takes roughly six months from identification of the circulating influenza virus strain of that year to then lead to a vaccine. And mind you, this is for a well-established disease process that we perform this same systematic process on every year. And it still takes six months. The steps here, which I've simplified, of course, include the following. The candidate flu vaccine virus is grown for about three weeks to produce a hybrid virus, which is less dangerous and better able to grow, and typically in hen's eggs. Two, the hybrid virus is then injected into a lot of fertilized eggs and incubated for, for several days to make more copies. And then third, the fluid-containing virus is harvested from eggs, the vaccine viruses are killed, and the viral proteins are purified over several days. So that's our typical vaccine process once we have the correct parts of the virus identified. The mRNA vaccines, on the other hand, can bypass these typical hurdles. They eliminate much of the manufacturing process because rather than having viral proteins injected, the human body uses the instructions to manufacture viral proteins itself. So mRNA molecules are also far simpler than proteins. For vaccines, mRNA can be manufactured by chemical rather than biological synthesis, so it is much faster than conventional vaccines to be redesigned, scaled up, and mass-produced. And I think that's why, well, at first I wasn't shocked by how quickly these vaccines for COVID-19 were developed, I think once you understand this process, you start to see, wow, so as we try all these different things, we already have this base mRNA molecule. So as long as we can find what is going to be most effective in folks, we can really change it pretty quickly and then scale it up. So in fact, within days of the genetic code of the COVID-19 virus becoming available, the mRNA code for a candidate vaccine testing was ready. That blows my mind. That's incredible. The best part of all of this is that once the mRNA vaccine tools become viable, mRNA can be quickly tailored for other, God forbid, future pandemics. So that is certainly good news for a country that found themselves very underprepared for this issue. So are there any problems or issues with mRNA? Although mRNA technology isn't new, for example, it was shown in the 90s that when synthetic mRNA is injected into an animal, the cells can produce a desired protein, but the progress remains slow because a couple of reasons. mRNA is, number one, easily destroyed by our immune defenses, 
And two, it is notoriously unstable and easy to degrade, which makes delivering it to the target very inefficient historically. Fast forward a couple decades, and in the mid-2000s, researchers figured out how to better stabilize mRNA and package it into small particles to deliver it as a vaccine. So the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines are expected to be the first using this technology to be approved by the FDA. The most important challenge that remains for development of these types of vaccines is still its inherent instability because it is more likely to break apart above freezing temperatures. So this new class of vaccine still requires special freezer conditions for distribution and administration. And that's what I've heard a lot about on the news is some of these crazy cold temperatures that are required. So what are these refrigeration requirements? Well, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine right now is said to need to be optimally stored at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit and will degrade in around five days at normal refrigeration temperatures or slightly above freezing. Now guys, minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit is like the freezer that a research lab might have. Not the everyday freezer that hospital or pharmacy or clinic or grocery store will have readily available. So not surprisingly, Pfizer is already developing shipping containers using dry ice to address these shipping constraints. Now, in contrast, although Moderna is also an mRNA-type vaccine, Moderna claims its vaccine can be maintained at most home or medical freezer temperatures for up to six months for shipping and longer-term storage. Moderna also claims its vaccine can remain stable at standard refrigerated conditions, so 36 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit, for up to 30 days after thawing within the six-month shelf life. So of course that seems much more practical than the Pfizer vaccine. However, as more testing is done, more safety data comes out, we will have to see if some of these requirements are modified. So that's sort of the nitty gritty on the mRNA to vaccine candidates that are currently being developed and have initial approval from the FDA. And so I'm hoping that it gives all of us in the ED and healthcare light at the end of the tunnel and some hope that our EDs will not be holding critically ill COVID-19 patients forever and ever. But hopefully, if we can get these vaccines deployed and figure out some of these stability issues, it can all lead us to getting back to whatever normal life used to be. So in recap for the podcast, during the month of April, ED visits across the country declined, as we mentioned, a staggering 42% from the same time in 2019. We talked about some of the factors, and most of these were associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. However, in recent weeks, we've seen this trend has reversed to show record-breaking number of COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. As more patients are hospitalized and centers are reaching capacity all across the country, and especially in Colorado, EDs are being hit hard with overflowing capacity and holding oftentimes critically ill COVID patients in the ED until an inpatient bed and nurse becomes available. Now, there are promising preliminary vaccine trial results, which have given ED workers and the country a renewed hope in this fight to end the COVID-19 pandemic. It's all based on a new type of vaccine being studied, one based on mRNA technology. The mRNA vaccines are much faster to develop and could potentially provide a more efficient process for developing future vaccines, which is very exciting. 
issues with the vaccine are special storage requirements, including cold temperatures to keep it stable. Regardless, the results appear promising, and they do provide a light at the end of the tunnel. But as we all are reminding our friends, especially as Thanksgiving is this week and we approach the Christmas holiday season, stay diligent. We still need to make it through the next six months in order to get an adequate number of people vaccinated. So stay tuned for more updates on this as they develop. Hopefully we'll be getting more robust safety data in the next couple of months. But I really think we could see some of these vaccines hitting frontline workers in the next six to eight weeks, um, which is exciting. So hope you guys enjoyed your Pharmacy Friday podcast. I will talk to you guys next time. Have a good weekend. Bye. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.